We are on lesson four. If you haven't picked up one of these. Good morning. So here we go again. <laughs> Kind of seems like every lesson in this series is an adventure <laughs> and really um, reminds me of the grace of God and, and his power. I mean, I know that most of us probably have heard this story over and over countless times, but it's, it's as though it never grows old, and it's always new. It's always different, always something new to learn. And today, um, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Passover. It, it, in my heart is probably the most important lesson in this whole series that we're doing. It's crucial that we understand it, um, because it's really a picture of our redemption and the power of the Lord to take us out of the bondage of sin. So um, we'll just have a word of prayer and, and get into the lesson. I want to make sure that I leave Michelle time because she's got some good things that she wants to talk about with you. So, you know, give me a high sign or something or, you know, if, if I need to. <laughs> I try to kind of keep this to half an hour, 40 minutes at the very, very most, but I don't want her not to have time for her part today. So. Give me a sign, somebody. <laughs> so let's just bow in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful to you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the picture that you give us uh, in the book of Exodus. We pray, Lord, that you'll take these things and just impress them on our heart and mind. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think I'm echoing a little. Can you hear it? So, on lesson four, <clears throat> last week's lesson, we talked about the power of God over the forces of evil and how Pharaoh did not budge. His heart was hardened against God, hardened against letting the people go. And now, what we have is the climax of the battle. We have the power of the enemy angel of death, the power of Satan on one hand, and the power of God on the other. It's, it's like a face-off. And the battle is being pitched. God knows the end of it. Satan thinks he has the upper hand. God knows that he is Lord of all. And Satan is about to come against the power of God, and he will not be able to overcome it. So, um, we're going to look at that power of deliverance from the hand of the enemy for the nation of Israel. And it pictures for us the power of the Lord over the hand of the enemy, over Satan's power, as he goes to the cross on our behalf. He is the Lamb of God, the Redeemer, and into the grave and then into his re resurrection and overcomes the power of death. So um, let's start out with Exodus 11, and we'll just move through um, <clears throat> those portions of Scripture. And I want to take 
Exodus 11, verses 1 to 3, first of all, and then we'll, we'll take those questions. Um, or we'll go from, yeah, we'll go maybe through the whole chapter. Maybe I'll read that to you. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. <clears throat> Tell the people that men and women alike, see, God is planning ahead, are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's official, officials and by the people. So Moses said... He's telling the people of Israel, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or thing, man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So you see what we have here is, is almost a retelling of the previous discussion that Moses had in chapter 10 with Pharaoh. It's almost as though we end chapter 10 and... Pharaoh sends Moses away. He says in, in verse 27 of chapter 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get out of my sight. Get out of here. Um, make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die, Moses. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And then the Lord had said to Moses. So this is a retelling of what occurred just previously. So God is setting the stage. So let's look at verses four through eight again. We'll take the questions that are there um, just to kind of refresh all of this. And let's take a look at this. What do you learn about the 10th and final plague? What does God say in verses four through eight? Complete and severe. It will be what? Complete and, Complete and severe. What else about it specifically? It will touch the most powerful and the lowliest. Mm -hmm. The most powerful and the lowliness. Low, lowest. Lowest. <laughs> but only the Egyptians. You know what? I want you to look at that because you're going to find out that, yes, it only does touch the Egyptians, but the warning goes to all. And I wanted to make sure you notice this. So in verse 4, Moses says, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son was the word. 
in Egypt will die. Who was living in Egypt at that time? Israel was in Egypt as well. And so when this, when God gives this warning, it's given to all. Not the people of Egypt only, but the Israelites as well. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl. Who are the slaves? The Israelites. So the warning is here. I'm going to go through Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt from the king to the slave girl will die. Now, here's where we get to the good part. To the slave girl who's at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction, distinction between Egypt and Israel. <coughs> he makes a distinction. And then he's going to tell us what that distinction is. But every firstborn will die. Because all have sinned. And that's what we're going to see. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. All. Under God's judgment until God makes a distinction for the people that he calls his own. He makes a distinction. What is the distinction or the difference the Lord makes between Egypt and Israel? He will spare his people. He makes a difference. But what is the basis for the distinction? The, I was going to say the covenant that he made with them. Go all the way back. You're right, Linda. The basis for the distinction is an Exodus 2.23, Exodus 6, 1 through 8. Let's go back. <clears throat> Exodus 2.23 and 24. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And what did he do? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And that covenant said to, to Abraham and passed pass on to his children, I will make of you a great nation. You will have many children, and in you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And on the basis of that covenant that God made, and that was reliant upon God alone to take care of his people, God makes a distinction on those children of Israel. They're his, and he claims them for his own. And so the distinction is based on the word of God. And their faith in that word. <clears throat> so um, Exodus 6, 1 through 8, let me just 
take a couple of verses from that. In Exodus 6, 1, he says, The Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will not let them, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I'm going to make myself known to my people as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Jehovah, as the Redeemer as their personal God. Now, we're going to learn about them a little bit. And if you look at, um, let's, let me look at these questions here to see what we need to go over. All right, let's take question number three. Using what you've learned about the Israelites from your studies of the early chapters of Exodus and the references below, how would you describe the Israelites' personal relationship with God at this time? We'll take those references that are there. I don't know if you've taken time to look them up. But without looking at them, just off of what you remember, what was the relationship of, of the Israelites like with God at this time when he says, I'm going to take them out? Not so good. They didn't have a great relationship with God. They hardly knew him after 430 years. All these years had passed. And those um, kings that knew Joseph and um, <clears throat> the sons of, of um, Abraham had no knowledge of what God had said to them. And those people who were left in Israel hardly knew God at all. So... Their relationship with God from Exodus 5, 22 and 23, I'll just summarize that one. The people complained about him. They really saw him as someone they did not know personally at all. He was just out there. And when Moses talked to them about him, you know, we read a couple of times they bowed down and worshiped, but not because they knew him, but because Moses was saying, God's going to do something good for you. So... Joshua 24, 14. Did anyone look that up? What do we learn from that? That Israel served what? They served other gods, and it was specifically the gods of Egypt. So those same gods that were overwhelmed during the plagues, Israel watched that. Israel watched and participated in some of the plagues, but watched from afar as God passed over them on some of the plagues and, and Egypt fell under those plagues, okay? Now, what about Ezekiel 20, 6 through 9, what you learn about Israel's patterns of worship? Anybody look those up? <coughs> they worship the idols of Egypt. And even after um, God had worked with Israel for years. Um, even as they came out of the promised land, those people wanted to go back to the gods of Egypt who had a hold on them. And so Israel was not where God would have wanted his people to be. They were far from him, and they um, basically did not know him. Now, question under that is, did Israel deserve to be treated differently than the Egyptians? What's your answer? No. And again, we have to go back to scripture. 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God called them just like years and years ago, some of you heard God calling you. But you didn't really have a real understanding of God. And maybe even when you came to know him, you didn't have a very good understanding of him. And that's where God is with his people right now. He's nudging them. He's claiming them as his own because of his promise. But they don't know him, and he's working with them little by little. So did Israel deserve to be treated differently? No. So then we come down to question four. The sentence of condemnation proceeded from the righteousness of God. Why do I say that? When God said, I'm going to bring plagues upon Egypt, and this final plague is this plague of death, I'm going to do this. The sentence of condemnation over every firstborn son in Egypt was brought out of God's righteousness. Why? Why would God condemn people who didn't follow him? Because he's righteous and he cannot, what? God cannot bear sin. He cannot look upon it. And so when he saw their unrighteousness, he says to you, them and to us, the wages of sin is death. I've got to carry that out. The soul that sinneth, it must die. That's my righteousness. But I make a distinction for Israel. So I'm going to read this sentence here, this paragraph on number four. The sentence of condemnation proceeded from the righteous heart of God. He could not bear sin. A holy God could not, would not tolerate sin. Israel had sinned. They had forgotten God. <clears throat> they had worshipped idols and gone their own way. And God had said, the soul that sins is the soul that will die. So how could God execute judgment upon the Egyptians and let the Israelites go free? A righteous God must act in perfect justice. So how could God act in mercy toward one and not toward the other. How does he do it? Both were forewarned. Both were forewarned. But what does God, and this is where we're going on into the next to chapter 12, what does God offer to Israel? A way out through the sacrifice of the lamb. How can God look upon our sin? He cannot, but he provides a way out. What is it? Jesus. Through the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture here. God could not look upon sin, not on the sin of the Egyptians, but they had hardened their hearts against him. And remember I said in the foreknowledge of God, this is what he knew, and he must act as a righteous God. Israel had sinned, but they were his people, his covenant people, the children of promise. He could not let them go, or he would be unrighteous in letting them go, and God cannot sin. And so he provides a way of escape. 
he provides a substitute. Now we're going to see how this substitute points forward perfectly to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when it hits you that God could have not done any of it, but he loves you so much, he puts in your place a substitute, his own son, so that you can escape the bondage of sin. It needs to move your heart Godward. But for the grace of God, there go I. So let's go on from here. Any comments before we start on chapter 12? I hope it takes your breath away. I do. I hope it takes your breath away to realize what God does for you. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners that God gave a substitute for that would bear your sin so he did not have to put you away and asks you then to believe on what he has done. That's what we're going to see happening in chapter 12. Okay, so the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in chapter 12. I'm going to take um, the paragraph I have at the top again and just read that and take it as part of the lesson. The difference that God put between Egypt and Israel was the outflow of his grace. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. The Israelites were in Egypt. They were part of his culture of idolatry. Both were sinners alike and under condemnation because the wages of sin is death. In nature and in practice, they were alike. But God is about to reveal himself as Jehovah in the covenant relationship as the one who redeems from sin and delivers sinners from bondage. So, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 11 and 21 and, 20, and 23 summarize briefly what we learn about the instructions given to the Israelites regarding the Passover. Um, I'm going to read this because I think it's important that we see it again, and then we'll talk about it. So, starting in 12.1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So God rearranges their calendar. The, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, and then when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them together. Now think about this. You have people who are living in bondage as slaves. And here, God has a very orderly plan for them to follow. 
if they want to escape from Egypt. They're not going to go out and randomly collect straw or anything like that. But he has this plan. You choose year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day. And these people had to obey this by faith. Strange laws for people who weren't good at following anything. <clears throat> Think about it. They've been in bondage, hateful bondage. And here comes God and he says, if you want to live, this is what you must do. Follow my word by faith. <clears throat> Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Here's the time. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Well, what a strange thing to do. Carry that blood and put it up on your doors. Whoever wants to do that. Okay. That same night, here's some more. They're to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw. Don't eat it cooked in water. But roast it over the fire, head, legs, inner parts. Don't leave any of it until morning. <clears throat> if some is left, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Oh, isn't that nice? You know. We'll see about that. Unschooled, uneducated people not used to following anything except Pharaoh's commands. Now, if you want to live, this is what you have to do. Did they have a choice? Yes. Yes, and I can't help but wonder if some of them said, huh? Some yeah. of them did. Yeah. And didn't do it. Some of them didn't do it. Some Egyptians heard this and did it. Remember when you read after they're in the wilderness and you read about the rabble, how the rabble complained the loudest? People who are not Israelites heard about this. So, eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Well, who's the Lord? This is what Pharaoh would say. I don't know the Lord. But he's talking to his own people here. Then on verse 12, on that same night it will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I touch when I strike Egypt. And then over to verse 21. <clears throat> then Moses summoned all the elders of Egypt, of Israel, and said to them, go at once, select the animals for your families, <clears throat> and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. 
When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or to strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And then he goes on, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped, and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And then at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Just think about it. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? So let's look at this just briefly. Um, <clears throat> I've just read what the Israelites were to do. Do you want to comment on that at all? What were the Israelites to do? Anything that you see that impresses you as you think about this and, and the promises that God gives in those scriptures? Anything that speaks to your heart? I just wanted to say how absolutely specific everything was and there was a time and it's just like you have to follow the exact plan. Mm -hmm. Can't go one step here or skip a step right. or whatever. God is a God of order. The enemy is a God of disorder. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things that you can know for sure about the Lord. He is a God of order. And so he orders this. Yes, Sarah. Um, just to add more to how specific he was, anybody was wondering why did he have him get dressed like that? You know, um, back in the culture, that is how you would get dressed if you were to travel. You would tuck your shirt up. You would, you would usually never eat with your sandals on. Actually, right. you actually wash your feet before you ate. And you'd have your staff because you travel with your staff. It wasn't just for walking, it would guard up animals, things like that. So there's a lot of symbolism because what God was telling them to do was get ready mm -hmm. because you're going to leave. So there's symbolism there. So in them obeying, it's actually a sign of faith that they trust that God's going to mm -hmm. take them out and do what he says. And he says, eat with haste because you don't know when you're going to leave. Not work it down so you choke. Not, it's a purposeful thing. Of right. Because you're, I'm going to get you out of here. And also with, um, I can. I'm going to pull from Ephesians six if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Ephesians six fifteen. We talk about the armor of God. And when he talks about the feet in, in verse fifteen with the armor, it says, "Have feet filled with readiness." Mm -hmm. That comes from the gospel of peace. And, and I think of that because it really relates what he's telling the Israelites to do here. We're putting sandals on your feet. Get ready to go. It's that same readiness that I see in the parallel now of he's telling us to put this armor on the feet with the readiness because you don't know when Jesus is coming back. So it's it's all relevant, the Old Testament, New Testament. I see this huge connection of, it is. of what God does. It's, it's, it's so purposeful. Even if, with a thing like we got sandals on. Yeah. 
Every part of it had a reason. Anybody else before we go on? Yes. Something that jumped out to me was that you need to just stay within the protection of the blood mm -hmm. for this to be working. I had to stay within the protection of the blood of the lamb for the act of God for salvation. Absolutely necessary. Um, yes. Kind of relating, but um, I think that looking at it, God had to prepare their hearts for this in that, like, you know, before any of the plagues happened, they were, like, so angry. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like, like God was preparing their hearts. And I think even in a lot of our lives when we come to faith, like, how there's this process of God preparing our hearts before we're even called to come under the protection of the blood. That's really, and, and part of the plagues were designed to prepare their hearts for the acts of God and, and for them to see how powerful he was so that when he speaks to them, they can understand that maybe this God knows what he's talking about. You have to think of them in a multi uh society multi-filled with gods just everything had religious significance and so when God speaks now he's he wants him to have an understanding of this is what I'm going to do I am the Lord I am the Lord so um now I have on question three and I want you to think about this we talked about it a little last week God's righteousness is at stake here he must believe in absolute holiness both toward Egypt and toward Israel. Was he righteous in his behavior toward, toward Egypt? And I want you to go over to Romans 9.14. I don't want to take too much time with this, but I want you to know um, what scripture says about this. God didn't just capriciously do this. But God has reasons for everything that he did. <clears throat> because he is destroying a large group of people now. So you understand that. Now the people in Egypt did not die when, when um, this happens, when God goes through with the Passover lamb. The eldest son dies from the king down to the slave child. The rest were in extreme mourning and surprise that all this was going on. So look at verse 14. I want to just read some of these verses from um, Romans 9. 14 says, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, and this is because he is God and God alone, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Is God unjust? Not at all. He tells Pharaoh this back in the book of Exodus, that I've raised you up for my purposes. But at the same time, Pharaoh, 
you've hardened your heart against me and I will allow it to be hardened and I will harden it because you have ignored me, basically is what God is saying. So, therefore God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Go down to 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and to make his power known, get this part, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. And that's what he does. He bears with great patience Pharaoh, the practices of the Egyptians, the practices of sinners, all of the time that he's calling them to come to know him. Because the Bible also teaches and that God, Jesus died for all, that all would come to repentance. But God bears with great patience those who choose not to know him, not to have anything to do with him. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God is God. You must know that he always acts in fairness, always acts in perfect justice. I want you also to turn back to Romans chapter 2. I want to read a little bit more about this. I'm going to quit really soon, Michelle. <laughs> Romans 4. Make sure I have my right reference here. Romans 2, 4. It says, <clears throat> Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. By ignoring him, by choosing not to follow him, basically is what it's saying here. God will give to each one, oh, let's see, against storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but he, to them he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does this evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But honor, glory, and peace for everyone who does good. Again, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. By grace, you're saved through faith. And when you ignore the call of God, you store up for yourself the wrath of God. And in the end... That's all going to be displayed. And that's what we see here. So 
let me just take you through one more question and then I'm gonna just summarize the rest of this and turn the lesson over to Michelle. Um, under number three, the second set of questions, how did God demonstrate his righteousness in redeeming Israel? How was every demand for justice met? And on what basis was Israel delivered? So how was God righteous toward Israel? They were sinners. They were worthy of death. How did he show them his righteousness? Take a lamb and the very specific orders of taking the lamb and how to sacrifice that lamb. On the basis of the substitute, God demonstrates his righteousness. So every demand for righteousness was meted out upon the lamb. The lamb died in my place. The lamb of God has taken God's wrath upon himself. And God let me go on the basis of my belief that that lamb of God was sacrificed for me. <clears throat> That's the plan of salvation. The only way that God can act righteously toward a sinful people is that there be a sacrifice provided. And he provided his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the verses that I have listed below talk about how Jesus Christ himself is the Passover sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, just one, let's look at that verse. Because this ties us very specifically to what's going on here. You see, God had all of this in his mind when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it says, verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may, you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. And this is the important part. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. What we see in Exodus, God reminds us, is for us here. Um, John 1.29, I'm just going to read some of these out loud. This is John the Baptist speaking, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 3.21, I'm not going to read this because of time, but I would advise you to take these verses and look at them. God presented him, Jesus Christ, a sacrifice of atonement for our sins, that he could be just and save those that believed on him. Revelation 5, let's look at that real quick and then I'll just wrap up with that. The Lamb of God is pictured throughout the whole Bible as that sacrifice for us. 
at Revelation 5, starting in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb. Just imagine this. Looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And then it describes him. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And that's talking about who is worthy to take the throne, to take the scroll. Who is worthy to be the redeemer? And only the Lamb of God is worthy. Sitting upon the throne in, in glory. So we need to understand this. What we're reading here in Exodus has eternal reference. And we're participants in it now in this time frame. So I'll turn it over to Michelle. I hope you have enough time. So so we're on the class discussion part. So how do, how do we apply all this? Let's go back to chapter 11 of Exodus, talking about the distinction here. When God gave them the distinction, what did this distinction look like to everybody else? What did it look like? What was going to happen? How would people know that there was a distinction? Nobody died in Israel. Right, and there would be loud wailing versus the quietness amongst the, the Israelites. So I wrote there, in the beginning of chapter 11, we learned that Moses is highly regarded by Pharaoh's officials and that soon they would be bowing down before M Moses, telling his people to leave because of all the painful deaths and the distinction that the Lord has made between the Israelites and the Egyptians, which the distinction is grace, withholding the punishment that they all deserved, and the grace would look like the wailing versus the quiet, the death versus the life. Okay? And that distinction then influences the enemy. Like Marcia said, some went out with them. Some were moved by what God had said, by all the plagues that had happened, all that they had been through. So the power of God influences things. So then I say to us, when we think about this and how we relate this to our life, for Christians today, what is the importance of being distinct? I mean, just start with you personally. What's the importance of distinction for you personally? What does it mean? If there's no difference between the church and the world, then why would anyone care about what our God has to do or say? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's one of the importances. How about for you personally? I mean, we pray for people to have this grace and to trust in it. What does it mean for you if you're distinct? Mm 
when he's trying to follow God's word and in all that you say and do. Right. And it means that we're a chosen people. Like it's important that there's a distinction because we're chosen. Right. And then I wanted to say, I think we have a peace that the world cannot understand. Yes. For us personally. Yep. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Mm -hmm. When you think about the peace, think about the physical circumstances there of Egypt. Peace in no sound, no wailing. That is very much different. And because of it, it caused them to bow down and say, you need to leave now. Your God is obviously superior and in control. I see the difference. I might follow or I might not if I'm an Egyptian. You know, so our distinction, how we walk in the world, influences and definitely matters to other people. So I want to look at um, 1 Peter 2.9. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay, so that's part of it. The first thing that we need to look at is that we're a chosen people. We are called to be distinct. We are different than the light and the dark because of Jesus living in us. Okay, so now turn to Romans 12.2. <laughs> Okay, because of this distinction, I'll start with 12.1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve that God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here again, you know, we're looking at renewing of our minds because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a distinction to be different. And it was from a great price of the lamb that he's saying, be holy, offer yourself as a sacrifice, live out your life in that distinction. Okay, and then let's just go to Matthew 5 there. We talked at length about the Sermon on the Mount. And you talk about a distinction that Jesus is trying to make there. That What was the distinction that we learned, those of you who were in that class of the Sermon on the Mount? Talking about submission to his what he wants. Do you remember the distinction that he called among the Pharisees that you need to be more righteous righteous than the Pharisees? Meaning that it wasn't just an outward behavioral thing. The distinction was within your heart that you were going to be changed within and living that out. That it's not just about following the law on the outside, but that it's working within you, that there's a distinction within you. And... um, 
thing there was in um, Matthew 5, 11, it talks about that distinction. It said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and live falsely, say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. But rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the point is that to live distinct sometimes can do what? It's tough. It can hurt. It can be made fun of. How many of you have ever been made fun of? And in what way? Like, what, what do people say? Do you still believe in that book? That was for a long time ago. Doesn't apply today. Like questioning your logic. Mm-hmm. One of the things I heard lately is sacrifice is just wrong. Mm. It's just wrong. Like, why would someone have to die for? Hmm. Has anybody ever been called like Lily White? Yeah. Holier than thou. Holier than thou. Holy moly. Yeah. So sometimes it's going to hurt, but we're also called to do it. So in Matthew five fourteen, it's talking about salt and light, and it says that. Um, In 14, it says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. And so that's what it means for us today to be distinct. So in what ways have you seen, and I'd like some examples if you could, has your distinction... And the way that you walk and your heart change influenced other people. I think about um, my nephew being killed last spring. Mm-hmm. And my sister wanted me next to her through that whole week. And everything that needed to be done and had to happen. And it was never verbalized why. Right. She just wanted me. And it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was hard to walk through all that. I just assumed that. Because of what she saw. The peace that we have. Anybody else? I can think of when I worked at Walmart. And it happened several times. But out of the clear blue, somebody would come up and say, and what do you think about this? It'd be out of something out of the Bible. <laughs> and, you know, take it completely unaware. <laughs> right, but, because they knew. Yeah, right. right. But they would come and seek me out and ask those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. And Cindy DeBilcock was another one that they would, you know. They would so out. they knew that there was something different that they mm-hmm. were attracted to. And I think, like what you said, there's that peace and power within and and people are just attracted to it mm-hmm. if they're seeking right mm-hmm. and that's the light <clears throat> shining through you had one i think for me um when i look at the old testament i see god uh dealing with people as a nation as a whole um and yet um you know salvation comes to us individually i see now um the way the United States is and the way the world is. Um, you know, I, I look to Romans 12 here where it says, uh, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's easy to let 
some of those things go that other people think are so important. Mm-hmm. Even like this Super Bowl game last night, and I, I wasn't even in the TV room. I, I mean, I just don't care. It, it's like um, there are so many other things that are so important mm-hmm. that those things that are important to the world are just, and I mean, I don't want to offend anybody that's a football fan, but my son was all excited about the commercials and stuff, and it's like, nope, don't even have the TV on. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yep. You know, it's easy not to conform when God gives you that inner peace and you just don't need it. Right. And it's different for everybody. What, what you would view as interesting or not, based on how he's working. You right. know, not right or wrong, just different. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, like if somebody invites you to do yoga or <clears throat> something that grates on your spirit and you feel convicted of because mm-hmm. there's a distinction between your God and all other gods. And you you kind of just like, it's one of those holy moly things where it's like, <laughs> you're making a big deal out of nothing. And it's like, well, for a Christian, it, it should matter to us. And that if it doesn't, I'm not saying that if you do that, but if you feel convicted about something and right. you speak about yeah. about it, then people just like kind of roll their lives and think sure. you're just making something out of nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. 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 When Linda mentioned about people coming to her at Walmart asking questions, so that made me think of when I was working and I worked with, um, uh, or was in the same office with the guy that was total opposite of anything I believed in. And he got um, shushed by someone who didn't like what he was saying or something. And he just said, Sandy Johnson's closer to God than anybody on this floor, and she never shushed me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) That, That to me gives me like... You know, you always think, okay, well, I think this. I shouldn't say y'all think this. But um, when I think about missionaries, sometimes I think, boy, they are really doing what God wants them to be doing. You know, they're out there doing things. But even in your everyday life, you can do that by just letting the light shine, by being true to who God is and showing that to other people. To me, I think that is like local mission work, right, in a way? It was the mission field. Yeah, (laughs) your workplace, right? So in other words, he knew that what he said, you planted something in his brain for him to say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had that happen with people call on the phone and they go, could you pray for so-and-so for this and that because they need prayer? And I go, oh, yes, I would love to, but you need to pray too. <laughs> and please call me back and let me know how this all works out. Right. You know, if, if God wants it to be worked out, you will let me know one, you know what, what happened. Mm-hmm. So, not that I needed to know what happened because God would know, but I just wanted that person to call me back and say something, you know, like mm-hmm. what happened with the gentleman that you had an encounter with. Yeah, I think too. Don't be leery to respond to this question as if you're bragging, because I really think that God working through us. According to Matthew, letting your light shine should be celebrated, mm-hmm. right? So, Anne? Yeah, I used to notice sometimes when I would walk into the faculty lounge at work, all of a sudden it got quiet. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of stories they were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's really a, something of respect for me. Yeah. 
Working at the resort that we own in Canada and, and some of the people drinking and swearing and carrying on and all this, same thing. I'd walk up to the fire where they're at and they're just like, oh, excuse us, Michelle. <laughs> it's like, that's fine. Let's talk about something better, you know? Did you have one? Just to add on to what <clears throat> asking for um, a callback when you're praying for someone, sometimes you have to change the tactic of your prayer. So it's important to get that feedback as to what's going on. Mm -hmm. Sure. Was there one last share over here? I was just going to say, speaking of like influencing those around me, like, you know, I've always felt like I've had an influence, you know, of people around me, but right now as a mom of little kids, I feel so like the weight of that, you know, so much. Mm -hmm. And, and like, there are some times where, you know, I feel, you know, like, I don't want to say like I'm doing a good job, you know, but like, you know, I feel like, okay, like that was a powerful moment. And then I have days where it's like, I, I you know what, they're going to grow up and go to prison because I'm not <laughs> But like, there's grace in that too of like, God is doing so much sanctification work in my life mm -hmm. through being a mom. Um, and you know, just last week I, I, <laughs> and, and, and it, there were tears on both sides and um you know and had to go and ask for forgiveness from my three-year-old you know and that's very humbling to to do that and and so just being able to see like how god is using this in my life to grow in me um because i feel the the weight of how important this is when you think about um, your own lives and the people that influenced you, the people that whose light was shining to bring you to where you are, they weren't perfect people, you know, but what they had probably was that consistency of going back and saying sorry when sorries were needed or, you know, just consistently in the word or, or whatever it was. So, no, we're not perfect people, but what we do impacts people, you know, impacts for the for the kingdom. I haven't worked out in the world for many years to be with the people, so I was thinking, who am I affecting? What's going on? I'm not doing much except for my own family. Mm -hmm. One day, a uh, computer repairman came into our house and was crawling underneath the desk and working on the computer, and he says, I can tell you're a good person. Things are really nice around here. You're quiet, and you must go to church. You must know God. And I thought, wow, we can just bring the peace and quiet in our home. Yeah. That is very encouraging. Yeah. I, um, many of you know that I grew up in not such a great family life and my consistency of my grandma like that. You know, just that quiet, peaceful place. And from, from what I was in, you know, almost like the Egyptian loud wailing at my house to that peace is just... You notice it, and you want it, and you want what she has. So I think that's awesome. One time at the bank, um, somebody said to me, you know, you set the tone for this whole place. Mm -hmm. And I want to think they meant spiritually, peacefully, yeah. uh -huh. consistent, yeah. no talk about anyone else. Um, it, it really helped me. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. It is humbling. Yeah. I just kind of a take off on what you said because when I think of like the people I work with and the situations 
there's just certain people you're around and it's just almost their presence is it's intense there's there's no peace it's not it's just I don't want to say antagonizing or aggravating but there's just no peace and then um, there were a couple of them who were working with a patient and it was they're having a hard time and she had a rough background and they came around the corner and said can you go deal with her because you'll be a lot more patient than we can, can't take it right now and it's it's just one of those things that I mean they, they know I'm a believer and whatnot but I think just once God has a grip on your life and I mean, it's obviously you have your ups and downs and everything but I think a lot of times people can maybe feel that more of that peace and calmness, at least you hope they can. Right. You know, that you're not going to get shaken or irritated and upset at every little thing. I just thought of that. Yep. It's so encouraging to hear these stories, isn't it? Because God is working in our lives on our salvation and, and, and working on our, our walk and how it, you know, it's all working out. I think from, so when I was an atheist, I used to say, I only know one person. That was my friend Angela. But our obedience to God's word matters because the world likes to point at Christians and say, they're this, they're that. But if there's, if you know just one holy, you know, I don't want to say holy Angela, but <laughs> if you know one holy Christian, then you know that the possibility of God and what he can do exists even when you're totally lost. Okay, let's move along to the next question. <clears throat> it says, in the beginning of chapter 12, God instructs the Israelites to remake their calendar based on this life-changing deliverance. It's a significant event that's to be remembered. Three or four more times in the text alone, he commands it to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Moses is detailing all that needs to happen in the festival and the ceremony for the purpose of worship and honor of God. In what way do we do that now? How do we do that? Because it's supposed to be a lasting ordinance for generations. What do we do? Lord's Supper, the communion that we take part in. Exactly. Yep. It wasn't a trick question. It was just for you guys to think about. <laughs> like, how do we still recall that? And I thought how neat it was that we just had communion, too. Because I was thinking about the question. Just remembering the bloodshed and the new life that we walked into because of Christ. Okay, the next question is, in Hebrews eleven twenty eight. it speaks specifically to the faith Moses had by keeping the Passover and sprinkling of the blood. And it talks about God producing the faith in Moses. So I want to talk about how, um, what we've learned so far regarding how does our faith form? Where does it start? And I want you to think about for a minute, and, and Marcia talked about this a little bit, so I won't go too, on on the, too far along on this, but... If you think about Moses' situation and who, he, you know, he's with the Israelites and the Egyptians and all these nine plagues have essentially not worked in the form of deliverance, right? They've worked in that people are starting to see the hand of God moving and he's totally um, just knocking down all the idols and that kind of stuff. But then it comes to him through God that he has to go say all these specific instructions in order to leave and that they have to apply the blood. And you think about, um, and I, I think Bethany, you had talked a little bit about it, about how God was working on their hearts through these trials of the plagues, like massaging their faith and producing that faith through trials because of what was to come and the, the obedience and the faith that it needed to actually do what he said the specific instructions, and then to actually apply the blood. 
So when you think about your own faith and what we all just kind of talked about, where does faith form? Where does it start? I feel like I heard it. It's by seeing what God has done mm-hmm. and hearing what God has done. Yep. And then by experiencing yourself. Seeing it, hearing it, experiencing, and it starts with the softening of God of your heart. It started with God. God is producing the faith that is within you. Okay, the last question here. So as I'm studying this, you can tear these apart if you need to. This is the, the stories that we're going to read and then the notes that we're going to take on case A and case B here. So at the beginning of each lesson, that I, when I start talking, I have the, um, the scripture reference from Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide that we might have hope. So when you think about this and all that Marcia had just taught about how this is a picture of the gospel, it's the the land that they had to take care of. It had to be the land without defect. They had to keep it in their house. And then, you know, the lamb had to mean something to them and they had to apply the blood and all this, all that they went through, all this. Do you think, or when you think about this and when you read it, because I know that my heart was touched when I started thinking about God, this is your pattern. This is a testimony of when, that lamb blood worked and your people were delivered. And it just, when you study and you read on these scriptures of how important this was, and they, they talked about it, Old Testament to New Testament, obviously they're saying you can learn from this to learn this pattern of how God does things. Did, did anybody think about the simple faith that it took for them to simply apply the blood? Yeah. I mean, that's what we need to do. He was teaching them obedience. <laughs> he was teaching them obedience, <laughs> producing faith in them through the other plagues. Okay, so then, so we have this, this simple picture of the gospel and that we need to apply the blood. It's, it's not just about knowing that Jesus died. It's about applying it to our hearts, like what they had to do to their, their, their door. So um, Marsha brings to me Arthur Pink one day. <laughs> And it's not called The Tale of Two Houses. That was kind of what I did. But this is from The Gleanings of Exodus by Arthur Pink. So in this chapter where he's teaching about this specific Passover, he brings up these two stories. And I I want to read the first one to you. And as I read it, we're going to talk about what I call case A, okay? And you can follow along with me. It says, this is about a specific household. At the head of one of the household is an unbelieving father who refuses to heed the divine warning and avail himself of the divine provision. Early that morning, the first early that evening, the firstborn says, Father, I am very uneasy. Moses has declared that at midnight an angel is to visit the land and slay all the firstborn, except in those houses which are protected by the blood of lamb. To still the fears of his son, the father lies and assures him that there is no cause for alarm, seeing that he has killed the lamb and applied the blood on the door. Hearing this, the sun is at rest, all fear is gone, and in its place is peace. Okay, so what do you think happened based on what scripture says needed to happen? What kind of peace is this? 
It's a false peace. So what's happening? What happened in case A? What notes could we put by this door with no blood? The son would have died. He was happy, though, and he was filled with peace, that false peace. He believed lies. No blood was applied. We had an unbelieving father at the head. So as in all things we're thinking about, we're trying to apply this today. What do you see today in case A? What do you hear in case A? I hear how he, he got a false sense of security from the world, mm-hmm. which is very common today. People are finding false sense of security of things that are not God. False sense of security and things that are not God, and especially when we think about eternal life. Mm-hmm. So what things do you think people might think today that they've applied the blood when in fact it hasn't been applied? I go to church. I do good things. <clears throat> Everyone's got to be going to heaven. God's a God, God of love. He's not going to punish us. God's a God of love. What was the other one? I worship God in my tree stand. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Did you have one? I know. But Everyone becomes an angel. Or God, if God doesn't exist. We're our own gods. Mm-hmm. Right. I was thinking, I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. And if God is a good God, why would he kill all these people? Right. <clears throat> and that all gods are pretty much the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're all going to the same place. Right. I have a relative that claims atheism, and he said, I don't believe in God, but if there is a God, when I stand before him, he's going to understand my unbelief and let me in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Hmm. Okay, so let's go to case B. In the second home, the situation is reversed. At the head of this house is a God-fearing man. He has heard Jehovah's warning message through Moses, and hearing has believed and acted accordingly. The lamb has been slain, its blood placed on the lintel of the post of the door. That evening, the firstborn says, Father, I feel very uneasy. An angel is to, to smite mm-hmm. all the firstborn tonight, and how shall I escape? The father answers, Son, your alarm is groundless. <clears throat> Ye, it is dishonoring to God. The Lord has said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. But, continues the son, while I know that you have killed the lamb and applied its blood, I cannot be but terrified. Even now I hear the cries of terror and anguish going up from the houses of the Egyptians. Oh, that morning would come. I shall not feel safe till then. Okay, so in this situation, we have a believing father. The blood's been applied. We have a scared son who's terrified of what he hears. So what do you think about this? What is the personal application that we could, what, what might this be representing today? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. Maybe being scared to die. Can you blame the son? Because it's unknown, right? He doesn't know. Imagine hearing the screamings and the wailings. So underneath there, (coughs) the foundation of security is from what? What is our foundation of security? God's word. Applying the blood. Applying the blood of the lamb. 
That's the foundation of the security. But it's going to be based on God's word because God mm -hmm. said, if you do this, I will pass over right. you. So you have to trust God's word is true. Faith in it. Faith in it. Yep. And the assurance and the peace is what you're getting at, Sandy, is from resting on God's word. Mm -hmm. Faith is that what he says is true is true. A spirit of fear is not from God. Yeah. I just, it helps me to remember that. I think that there's probably more than one person in this room that does wonder about dying, right? But what we don't want is to be like the sun in that we're not resting on what God's word says. So for me, when I read about this portion of scripture and apply it to now, I think about the simple faith of what needs to happen. You need to apply the blood. God said the blood is what works and to be trusting in and that's what works and have that peace and the importance of being in God's word being in community with other believers so that we can talk about this and, and reassure each other that this is God's word and God is good and he does what he says because we've seen it in patterns throughout his, his scripture and to continue to go back to that. So if you're in a place where death is scary and you don't, you're saved, but you maybe don't have that assurance, then I would encourage you to continue to think about this and go back to the scriptures where over and over and over the pattern of God is good protection, love, to be an encouragement for you in that fear. All right, so the last closing remarks I have in general in this whole lesson, we see God demonstrate his love for his chosen. God promised he would redeem his people with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He would take the Israelites as his own, bring them from the Egyptian, the Egyptian slavery. A way of saving came through the blood of the lamb, which began the Passover. Likewise, in Christ, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died. And our roots at the Lord's table stem from the first Passover. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's true. It's comforting. It's encouraging. So let's just end with prayer. Lord, again, I just come before you week after week, just in awe of your word and how important your word and what you've done and the revelation from it and your Holy Spirit guiding us through it and learning it and pressing it upon our hearts. I just thank you for that opportunity. I thank you for the work that is being done in, in our lives and, sh and shining for the light for the world. And I pray that we would continue on that and be encouraged in, in prayer and fellowship with other people and being in your word. Lord, I just thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one thing I have to say before we close up, this is super important for next week. So next week's lesson, um, particularly in the class discussion part, I, I need everybody's help, okay? So we are talking about next week actually crossing over, you know, through the seas. And um, there's a song that I think about a lot. It's by Chris Tomlin, and it says, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. He split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. 
You rescued me so I could stand and sing, I am a child of God. So next week, what, what we're going to do, and my hopes for you, and it's in the lesson, um, is I want to share, just kind of like we did today, I want to share to honor God in situations in your life where God has parted the seas for you and how he has showed up. And I don't want the focus to be so much on what the problem was, but how God showed up. So for example, if I were to use this, this is not real, but this is what it might look like, okay? I want you to think about your story. I want it to be like, let's say this was me. My husband and I were going through some significant trials. And this is how God showed up, okay? And I would give examples of that. What I'm trying to say is that I want to honor God with a lot of stories and encourage each other with a lot of stories. So if we have one person sharing the huge problem and then the little bit about God, then it takes up too much time. But what I really want, and, I, and I'm really serious about this, is that because of what God has delivered us in our lives, to be an encouragement to other people to say, I walked through this, and this is where God was. So next week during our class discussion time is going to be, a, I hope, a big time of sharing for encouragement and honoring God for what he's done. Not, not to have your stories entertain us with the problems, no, but to encourage us for what God has done. Okay, so I want you to be prepared for that. And if you're not comfortable sharing, because we're not going to get to everybody, if you're not comfortable sharing, I would encourage you, when Moses talks about the importance of telling this to your children's children, whoever, don't tell us next week if that's not your comfort level, but tell somebody else. Just say, even just blame it on me. I have a weird teacher, and I just need to tell you this story because I don't want to do it in front of everybody else, but I'm trusting in you. And then maybe come back to us and say, I told somebody, and this is what happened. Okay? So can we do this? Can we just be a little bit brave next week and share for honor and worship of our God and to encourage each other? That's really my hope for next week because the crossing of the Red Sea was powerful, powerful in their lives to remember on who God was and to honor him. So that's what I want to do because we all have Red Sea moments, I guarantee it, where we needed to be walked through. Okay? All right. Thank you. <laughs>